Happy Buddha's birthday. Good morning. It is indeed a great pleasure and joy for me to get to drop things everywhere. <laughs> One continuous mistake, as our founder famously said, Dogen Zenji. We'll talk a little about him today also. But first, I wanted to tell you all four, I think four, we'll see how many of my very favorite stories about the historical Buddha, Atama Siddhartha. Um, do I need to go through that for any newcomers? Just a real brief, raise a hand, don't be um, shy if need a little brief refresher on the history of the Buddha. Okay. Um, so the Buddha was born about 5600 BCE. And the first story which we hear, which comes down to us through many means, is at the Buddha's birth. And it is said that he took seven steps in each of the cardinal directions pointed up and pointed down and said, I alone am the world honored one. And uh, I love that. We're all like that, aren't we? When we're born, we are the most important thing. So whether you believe that he actually took uh, 21 steps and said that the minute after he was born, um, I leave that to you. But um, so this is the fundamental thing when we're born, we are the most important thing in, in the universe. And I found this lovely little poem by Issa, who lived Japanese, great Japanese haiku poet, who lived from uh, mid 1700s to the early 1800s about just this. Even the lowly bamboo shoot proclaims to the world, truly I alone am the world honor. That's sweet even the lowly bamboo. Um, my, my second favorite story, so these are sort of beginning, middle, and end of from the Buddha's life. Uh, and these are very important stories to me. I think they show me a lot, and hopefully they will you too. So the Buddha, of course, first started out having everything and being shielded from the world and had no idea about how really awful life could be until he snuck out and saw all of this and determined he wanted to get to the bottom of it. So he went from having everything to renouncing everything and living the very hard ascetic life. And that didn't really work for him either. And then he was kind of at the end of it and a, and a, a wonderful girl came and fed him and nursed him <clears throat> back to health. And he realized that either extreme wasn't really working. So he found the middle way, which is an interesting concept in itself, uh, not average, not, it's just, just right. Kind of like Goldilocks and, and the three bears, you know, just right. Um, but that's a big thing. Anyway, the Buddha sat under the under the salad tree, and one morning he looked up and saw the evening star, I guess. I wasn't there. I don't know. But he is <laughs> reputed to have said, um, 
How wonderful, how wonderful I and all sentient beings simultaneously attain the way. And that is a really interesting, difficult statement. How is that possible? That, you know, we talk about enlightenment, we talk about waking up, and the Buddha saw something looking at the evening star. And he said something very important. It wasn't just, I woke up. The Buddha is saying that not just I woke up, but I and all sentient beings simultaneously attained the way. I'm going to talk a little bit later about the way, because that's very important in my understanding of the Dharma too. So I and all beings, when we, when we see clearly, we see it's not just us. We see our interconnection. And once I wake up, I see you are, we are all of the same fabric, if I were to put it in my own words. I think what that means is when the Buddha had a realization that everything was interconnected, everything, I and all being simultaneously anyway. So language is difficult because we have to say something in words, but the words don't quite reach it. So to me, the study of the Dharma, the study of um, our liturgy, the study of these great sayings that come down to us over the, through the ages are a poetic expression of something that's really difficult to put into words. And the longer you study the Dharma, the more you'll see that people have tried very desperately to put it into words. And it's, I think it's just endless. You, you know, you just keep trying. Uh, and there's an old Zen saying, it's like the finger pointing to the moon. You know, we, we have to look at the moon. Usually we get hung up looking at the hand, you know, and the fingers and everything. But the words are pointing to something bigger. So now we come to my next favorite story. The Buddha twirls a flower. And I'm going to read a little bit about this and also pull out a koan, because those of you who know me know that I love koans. I was bitten very early by the koan bug. Um, but we don't have to read koans in these old collections and books. Our lives are filled with koans. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a while. Anyway, the Buddha twirls a flower. So let me read. Since I brought these, I might as well use them. My favorite old collection. But this was the first collection for a whole 293 which was about the only Zen book I could find in 1968. <laughs> and it had these great old Zen stories and it's like, I want to be like that. So this is Robert Aitken's uh, translation. Case six of the Wumankan, which means the gateless gate, um, collection of 48 koans by Wumen or Muman depending on the language. The case, once in ancient times when the world honored one was at Mount Gurbrakuta, he twirled the flower before his assembled disciples. All were silent. Only Mahakashapa broke into a smile. The world honored one said, I have the eye treasury of the right Dharma, the subtle mind of Nirvana and the true form of no form and the flawless gate of the teaching. It is not established upon words and phrases. 
It is a special transmission outside the, it is a special transmission outside tradition. I now entrust this to Mahakashapa. So that's the, the case or the koan. And I've um, been thinking a lot about that word koan because we tend to say it's a public case or something like that, a public case. But, but I've been thinking more and more lately, koan might be expressed as a contradiction. Um, it could be both. It could be a lot. So why pick and choose? But um, anyway, there's a lot in this statement here. Um, and I'll get to that in a second, to the, to the heart of this koan. The treasury of the true Dharma eye is a phrase that was taken up by many teachers, but especially Dogen, who is the founder of this temple, no, the founder, the ancestor whose teaching is this temple is based on the treasury of the true Dharma eye is his masterworks, which he wrote Dogen, for those of you who may not know, lived in the 1200s from 1200 to 1253. And he was a brilliant, brilliant person. Um, from what I can tell, reading his work coming down to us through medieval Japanese and translation. Anyway, back to the twirling of the flower. And we see things like this throughout the Zen tradition where a teacher will get up and, you know, you all expect the teacher or whoever's up here to say something and they don't say anything. They'll like hit the ground with their staff and leave. You know, that's it. I'm not going to talk. So we don't know what the Buddha's intention was. I suspect it was this flower says it all. This, this flower is a sign of the whole universe, the way it's like you hold this up and you don't really have to say anything. It's all right here. Right? It could be anything. It could be the kutz. It could be the paper. It could be anything. But it's easy to kind of miss it. It's easy to not see. In some ways, the Dharma is right there in front of us. We don't see it because it's we are it. It's too close. We're too close to it. But in another way, um, it's very slippery. You know, we can, we can hold up the flower, but we can maybe not see it. So there's a real leap of faith and understanding, not faith, faith is not the right word. There's a real leap between repeating the teachings, which we do, and then finally those teachings fall together and you go, oh. So we just had a, a, a koan class and we were talking about Wuman, the compiler of this text, and he says, it's not that difficult. Just cut off the mind road. Well, what does that mean? Dogen says the same thing. Just think not thinking. You know, when asked about our Zen practice, how do you do it? Just think not thinking. I've carried that around for many years. And, you know, it's kind of like you say, Dogen, big, big help, right? How do I do this? Just think not thinking. Well, I, uh, one of the books I read many, many years ago, um, Katsuki Tsukita had a thing called Zen training, and he had a way of thinking about this. And he called it 
the first nen, the second nen, the third nen, and nen is just a mind moment. So just think before thinking. How do you think before thinking? If you cut off the mind road, not easy to do, but you can try it at any moment of any day. Before the thinking arises, there's just the sight. I'm looking at you if I can shut up my mind for a second. You all just come into my sight field before the thinking starts. Now I think, oh, I'm sitting in the Zen center here are all my friends and Dharma pals. And then I start making evaluations. So the first nen is before the thinking starts to churn. It's, it's, it's difficult, but it can be done. And uh, you can practice it when you're sitting. You can practice it anytime, any moment. If you can just stop the thinking or see if you can let the thinking settle enough to just allow everything into one field. So, you know, in the Heart Sutra, it says no, no eye, no ear, no those no tongue, no body. What's that all about? There's a calling for you. When we don't think, there's no longer a separate eye, a separate ear. All of these things can come right into our mind, heart as one unified field. That's a lot to say, but I think I think that practice can be done. And all the separation between this individual person and you individual people out there can fall away, maybe momentarily. But it's wonderful because then there's no, more, no longer a separation. We're all part of the same fabric. But saying that isn't quite enough. So the Buddha holds up a flower and Mahakashapa smiled. He got something. And the Buddha says, okay, you see what I'm doing here. You've got the teaching now. That's my understanding of it anyway. And it's my, that understanding is probably still going to continue to evolve. Now, woman, woman has a comment here, and I'm going to read it to you because it's, it's kind of disrespectful. Gold-faced Gautama insolently degrades noble people to commoners. He sells dog flesh under the sign of mutton and thinks it is quite commendable. <laughs> Suppose that all monks had smiled. How would the eye treasury have been transmitted? Or suppose that Mahakashapa had not smiled. How could he have uh, been entrusted with it? If you say the eye treasury can be transmitted, that would be as if the gold-faced old fellow were swindling people in a loud voice at the town gate. <laughs> if you say the eye treasury cannot be transmitted, then why did the Buddha say he entrusted it to Mahakashapa? So these old Chinese masters were real troublemakers and they were always doing stuff like this. Um, I want to say more about this when we get to the last of the Buddha's teachings, because I think it's important. What we tend to do here, here's an old, it's not so old. Here's a saying by a modern Zen master, Salaki Roshi, who was an iconoclastic teacher. He was the teacher of Uchiyama Roshi, who some of you may know, uh, opening in fraud. Anyway, Sawaki Roshi had a saying, what are you all gawking about? Don't you realize this is about you? All of the Dharma ultimately is about each one of us individually. So to say, to, to say and, and Wuman says in the, in the opening of the gateless barrier, 
if you need a Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. If you need a patriarch, kill the patriarch. What's all that about? Do it for yourself. Um, don't seek to walk, follow the footsteps of, of the, the sages. Seek instead what they sought. So rather than venerate, I mean, we do venerate the Buddha because he started this whole thing. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful for all of that. But we have to do it ourselves. So rather than follow in the Buddha's footsteps and just say, oh, the Buddha is great, say, be a Buddha. Sit, which you all do. You're here. You're doing it already. You have joined you have joined the great stream of the ancestral teachers, whether you know it or not. Um, okay, so I think all this denigration is just to, you know, well, what if this? Well, what if that? Well, what if this? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, he's just kind of poking you. And these guys tended to pry us out of our comfortable nests that we make. Oh, yeah, this is, you know, we'll hold up a flower. I'll, I'll just hold up a flower like the Buddha without seeing the real, real core meaning of that, that the Dharma is everywhere. Everything is a Dharma teaching. And um, so the more we can do that, the better. All right, the final teaching of the Buddha, which I love, was at his passing. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Let's try that. Thank you, Mate. So the Buddha was a person just like us, and um, he passed away. And at his passing, his final teaching, so I've been led to believe, was this. Be a light unto yourselves. That was his final teaching to us. And I found a poem about this, The Buddha's Last Instruction by Mary Oliver. And those of you who know me know I can almost never read Mary Oliver without bursting into tears and becoming a puddle here. But um, I could read it now. Let's see how we're doing on time because I have some more things I wanted to talk about a little bit before the ceremony. Um, so I could read it now, and then I could read it after I'm done yammering about how all these teachings come to us through the ages. So would you like to hear it twice? Yes. Okay, it's beautiful. Mary Oliver, for those of you who may not know, is a phenomenal American poet, and uh, I just love her stuff. The Buddha's last instruction, make yourself, <laughs> make yourself a light, said the Buddha, before he died. So that's a little different than be a light up, be a lamp unto yourself. Make yourself a light before you die. I think of this every morning at, as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet and evergreen. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over, over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. 
No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raises his head. He looked into the faces of the frightened crowd. Isn't that beautiful? I knew I'd cry. So um, these wonderful teaching stories come down to us. Be a light unto yourselves. That's his final teaching. And I think it's very beautiful. So of late, I've been reflecting a lot on how these teachings come to us. And it's fascinating process, really. Um, long before writing, I think there were people with prodigious memories. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think Ananda, the Buddha's closest attendant uh, and longtime Dharma friend, had a prodigious memory. And I think it was said that he memorized all of the teachings of the Buddha through his many years of, of teaching. Um, and yet I think it's also said, I may be mistaken, that he did not attain enlightenment during the Buddha's time. It, it was only afterward that after repeating all this stuff, he finally put it together. He saw something illuminating. So for many, many years, teachings uh, in all cultures came down through through the word of mouth and memory. And then we have um, Chinese and Japanese pictograms. I was thinking about the I Ching, which is very, very old. Um, I wrote down here when it is I Ching, about 1,000 to 700 BCs. That's a long time ago. And it was written in um, pictograms. I don't know if any of you know about the I Ching, but the, the pictograms, uh, broken lines and solid lines, and it is my understanding anyway that the combinations of these 64 pictograms depict all the changes that happen in the world. So the I Ching is, means the book of changes, which means everything changes. And I think I remember reading once Suzuki Roshi said that when someone asked him to great teaching of Buddhism, and he said, everything changes, which is on the surface, very simple, but really quite, quite a deep thing to see that everything changes. So the book of changes, and, and we read also in the song of the jewel near Samadhi about the Lee hexagram, which is number 30, which is radiance. And uh, I brought the I Ching, but I'm not going to read that right now. Um, so we have these pictographic languages. So in Chinese, they would actually draw pictures of things. And, and that evolved over the years. Um, so we have these texts which come down to us from Chinese and Japanese in pictures. And then we have to translate them into Western languages like ours, which are alphabetic. And there's a lot of room there for interpretation. And one of the things I wanted to read to you were a few different translations of one of the things we, we read all the time here. Very, very major teacher by Dogen, our founding, founding teacher, 
um, Genjo Cohen, and I, th I thought it would be interesting to read some very different translations just to give you a sense of the amount of room there. Now, I will say that the first translation you read is usually the best. When at least I'm the most, it's like the first piece of music you hear in a certain interpretation is the best because that's the one you know the best, maybe. All right, so Genjo Koan, I'm just going to read just a couple of well, a couple of paragraphs. This is a traditional translation uh, by Kaz Tanahashi and Robert Aiken. And they translate Genjo Cohen as actualizing the fundamental point. So the most important thing, how do you actualize the most important thing? So here is their translation. As all things are Buddha Dharma, there are delusion, realization, practice, birth and death, Buddhas and sentient beings. As myriad things are without an abiding self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddha, no sentient beings, no birth and death. And we hear this kind of stuff all the time. The Buddha way in essence is leaping clear of abundance and lack. Thus, there are, there are birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddhas, yet in attachment blossoms fall and aversions and, and in aversion weeds spread. Marvelous, marvelous stuff. And you can study Genjo Kwan for your whole life. It's so beautiful and poetic. And so I was thinking, you know, this dichotomy between poetic and explanatory, and then it occurred to me I'm wrong. The poetic can also be explanatory. So in my old age, I'm constantly correcting my understanding these days. Here is a very puzzling, strange translation by uh, an American Zen practitioner, Bob Myers, and, and listen to this. He calls it the unfolding puzzle, Genjo Cohen, the unfolding puzzle. Sometimes the world appears to us replete with wisdom and foolishness, daily practice, life and death, saints and sinners. Other times, the clarity and confusion and the living and the dying and the saints and the sinners and everything else all vanish into namelessness. The true way naturally transcends such opposite, opposites. It joins life with death, wisdom with foolishness, the ordinary with the divine. Be that as it may, the blossoms you adore will wither and fall. The weeds you abhor will flourish and sprawl. Ooh, I didn't notice that rhyme. That's kind of sweet. And then an earlier translation, Bob Myers gives another one. And, and I'm only doing this to show you that there is a lot of room between reading these pictograms and, and coming up with some kind of rendition. And personally, I love the variety of, of these different translations. You may not, but I sort of do. So here's an earlier translation of the same passage. As truth dawns on the world, you look at things and you see the question of enlightenment, you see practice, you see beginnings and you see endings, you see saints and sinners. But once you've stripped things of their selves, you no longer see confusion, nor enlightenment, nor wise people, nor normal people, nor birth, nor death. And in the end, finally, life and death become one, 
confusion and clarity become one, the holy and the mundane become one. For at its heart, the true way transcends all opposites. But these are just abstractions. I think that's important. You know the flowers blossom you so desire. They will nevertheless wither and fall. You know the weeds you so detest. They will nevertheless flourish and spread. So endless study here, but I think, at least this is my feeling studying the Dharma for so many years, there's some really major points that all of these great teachers, all of the calling collections, all of our liturgy keep coming back to again and again and again. Um, the, uh, I always get confused. The identity of relative absolute, relative and absolute are the same. We, we see this again and again, but it doesn't seem like it to us, right? It's like, I'm here, I'm a separate individual. You're out there, you're separate from me. But these teachings tell us we're all the same when we stop thinking about it. But then the trick is to really feel it. And I think that's where our Zazen practice is of immense value. Um, you have the opportunity, and you can do Zazen anywhere, but you have the opportunity to really, really feel that in your guts and bones. There's no separation. This I and all being simultaneously attenuated. Um, no eye, no ear, no nose. What is that all about? And, and I've been studying it for many, many years. And it, the thing about the Dharma that I love is it just keeps opening out. No matter how long you study it, you'll, you'll see another aspect that you didn't see before. So I think that's the case with all great writings is it's so full of mystery. Uh, and we see something. I, I mean, I can tell you my first encounter with Dogen many, many years ago. I didn't know what I was reading. It's like, what is this? But I know it's important. I don't understand it now, but I know it's important. I'm going to keep, keep after it. So I don't know if any of you read Brene Brown. I think she's amazing. She's a, a shame researcher here in Houston. And her teachings are without using Buddhist terms. They are very much in, in my mind, uh, Dharma teachings. She quoted Carl Jung as saying, paradox argued that a paradox is one of our most valued spiritual possessions and a great witness to the truth. And so many things we come across in our Zen practice, our liturgy, our paradoxes. But Carl Jung and, and all of these Zen teachers, I think, are pointing at the same thing. This is where all the good stuff is, where these paradoxes are in our lives. And as I've often said, we don't need to study these old koans to come across paradoxes in our lives. They're, they're there all the time. Our basic paradox, I have a cartoon here. Do any of you know who Calvin and Hobbes are? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, there's, there's, some, there's some pretty cool Dharma teachings in Calvin and Hobbes. I'm looking for one in particular. I haven't found it yet, but okay. Our basic paradox is I alone am the world honored one, right? I'm the most important thing in the world. And we know from our studies and our scientists tell us that our planet is an electron on, a, on an atom, on a speck in a table somewhere in the vast universe. 
So we are at the same time, the most important thing in the world and an insignificant speck. So here in the first panel, Calvin is looking up at the starlit sky and he screams at the top of his lungs, I'm significant. And then he looks the other direction in the vast sky and he says, screamed the dust speck. <laughs> so there it is. Um, well, I could read the Buddha's last instruction again before we break, or we could call it quits. Should we take a secret ballot? Read it. Read it. The Buddha's last instruction by Mary Oliver. Let's see if I can get through this without choking up. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, <clears throat> he lay down between two solid trees and he might've said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gather and stretch forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air. I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet he feels, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. 